Welcome to Skeptex, the weekly show where we take a deep dive into the world of tech news, politics and research. I'm Nayana. And I'm Josh. And today we are joined by Jessica Morley, Jess Morley, really, who's our friend and colleague uh, at the Oxford Internet Institute, like us doing a def- uh, default uh, on our programme. Jess, it's great to have you here. I've been wanting to get you on for a while. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, we've got lots to, lots to discuss, uh, both in Jess's research, which stretches far and wide across the, the world of digital health and everything NHS data, <laughs> degree, um, <laughs> as well as some related stories uh, that, that pertain to your, to your research. But Jess, maybe just, if you wouldn't mind, give us a brief overview of who you are, what you study, and, and kind of what brought you to doing a DPhil at the LPM. Yeah, of course. So, as you said, my name is Jess. I have been in and around the health data policy space for about 10 years, I'm very old, and <laughs> in terms of what brought me to the OII to do a DPhil, I was uh, working as a waitress in a cocktail bar, I was working <laughs> as a policy analyst in the Department of Health and Social Care, and through a variety of weird coincidences, ended up sort of being the AI subject matter expert, and then realised that actually I didn't really know anything about AI properly, and was feeling increasingly uncomfortable about the fact that I felt as though we were making policy decisions about topics that uh, nobody really had enough technical knowledge or enough knowledge about the ethical and sort of social implications, and so I thought, well... I'll go and generate the knowledge myself, and so that's how I ended up uh, doing a master's first, and then onto onto DPhil. And in broad terms, my research looks at how do you make better use of health data for research and analysis. Is that specifically looking at the NHS? I do specifically look at the NHS in my PhD, but outside of PhD work, a little bit more broadly. But the NHS is such a specific context. Mm that a lot tends to be NHS focused. Yeah, talk to us, I know that you wear loads of different hats, you talked to us a little bit about your DPhil research. Um, what about kind of the other the other things that you do in the, the health space? Yeah, so I have also done lots of work directly with policy, so I think one of the things that people, uh, you, I know you had Ben Goldacre on here before, mm. so he and I wrote the, what's so known as the Goldacre Review, or better, broader, safer, using health data for analysis and research, which was a big review ordered or sort of commissioned, I suppose, by, at the time, Matt Hancock, if we remember that far back hmm. in Secretary of State. Um, and that was really trying to look at how do you balance the needs between broad access to health data while simultaneously preserving privacy um, because that's something that the NHS has really struggled with yeah. in the past. Yeah, and on that point, um, one of the stories I think we would have covered whether or not you were here mm. yeah. was this news that the NHS's COVID-19 app is shuttering. It's going to be disappearing from our devices for those of us who still have it. End of an era. End of an era, yeah. <laughs> end of, end of a, a very significant moment, I think, in mm. sort of tech uh, health infrastructure. Obviously, you've had a bit of a front review of that, we've done some stuff related to the sort of ethical requirements for those kind of apps. Could you give us a bit of a, a brief journey back to, I think, the, probably the spring summer of 2020, when I think there was lots of debates and lots of negotiations going on about what shape this, this test and trace app should, uh, should take, and kind of how that has maybe in the, in the long run changed the nature of health tech and, and, and government in this country. Oh, interesting. Uh, so, sort of rewinding back to that fever dream that was March 2020, yeah. I think, as everyone will probably remember, most 
governments and in particular healthcare systems were sort of in a little bit of a panic about oh what can what can we do mm. and very quickly this idea of test and trace trace had spread and then the idea of testing and tracing and in particular random contacts so people you might have been on a bus with etc um how do you identify them and then there was this idea oh we could potentially do it via an app and you can Mm -hmm. use geolocation and you can use who has been basically who's been near your phone yeah and that's sort of a mechanism of identifying who you've been in contact with and so initially the nhs tried to develop an app itself mm-hmm. um and this is a little bit of a repeating pattern of the nhs actually mm-hmm. where it thinks it can it has more technical capabilities in-house than it necessarily does mm-hmm. and wanted to yeah build an in-house uh, nhs contact tracing app and then a variety of people including me and you josh and then a whole bunch of other people pointed out that there was actually some quite significant sort of privacy infringement mm. implications with the original design of the app um there wasn't sort of any mechanism of encryption it was all going to a sort of centralized database mm. and that had run for quite some time with this idea of it being a pilot and then I think eventually they realised okay this is not really going to work and not enough people are going to uh, develop to download it because they are concerned about these privacy infringements and also at the same time as you know like the big phone providers so Apple and Google had sort of collaborated and said hey we can actually do this for you in a way that will not have some of these implications and so then the app pivoted and used that mechanism built by the mm. tech giants who sort of uh, know what they're doing mm. a little bit more, um, and that's that's what happened. And then mm. now it's being retired. But I, I suppose the kind of interesting thing that the app raised was thinking about health tech to begin with. I think a lot of people, um, you know, it took the pandemic for us to kind of realise the different ways in which technology uh, influences our like healthcare. Mm. Um, I remember a couple of years ago when it was announced that um, I remember a lot of people or a lot of my friends who don't really think very much, I guess, about technology in the critical way that we're used to thinking about it, uh, suddenly thinking about GPs having access to data. Um, and, you know, maybe that's kind of a general culture of thinking more about privacy and thinking more about data, mm-hmm. um, which has kind of been the scary word that has been tossed around so much in the news. And people are like, I meant to care about this, but I don't know why and I don't know what to do about it yeah how do you think that kind of those kind of conversations of people being interested in also afraid of data uh have influenced the sort of health data space or health tech space yeah great question so I think the pandemic changed it in two ways one I think it made people realize quite how much data is used beyond their direct care yes so we suddenly had you know the number of cases being displayed in the news every day and graphs and all of that type of thing which for people like me that's obviously always been a part of Mm. what health data is used for but for many other people I think there was not necessarily such a great public awareness of the fact that their health data and that in particular their electronic health records are used beyond their interaction with their GP on a sort of day-to-day or weekly basis or whenever they see their their GP so in that sense it was very positive um the privacy aspect of that is that the NHS has for a long time wanted to expand its use 
of electronic house records for what they, those purposes, which are called secondary purposes, um, by centralising the records. Because in England, there's often a big thing made of the fact that the NHS has this big longitudinal records and they own mm. everything in one place. But that's not actually really true. Mm. Each individual GP is a individual data controller and there isn't sort of a centralised place where it all lives. And that has been a long-term ambition. But every time the NHS has tried, it has failed catastrophically to win over public trust or to win the public mm. licence um, because it hasn't necessarily explained how that data would be protected or what sort of governance arrangements would be put in place to protect it. So the big one originally was in 2013, that was Care.data, data, and mm. then during the pandemic they repeated it um, by sort of making an assumption, I think, that because people had had this now more positive understanding of what data is could be used for now is the time for us to try again and so they've tried to do this thing called gp data for planning and research which acronymizes to gpdpr which is not at all confusing <laughs> mm. um, and again really really got the both the messaging but also the technical framework wrong and now we are hovering at a opt-out rate of near six percent of the population which is pretty high so that's people who opt out of their data being used for secondary purposes. Yeah, and, and that kind of gets us in some ways, I think, to what you're studying for your PhD here, yeah, specifically looking a bit more at the algorithmic side of decision-making in clinical settings, right? So yes. how do we get from, okay, we've got a lot of data, <laughs> and potentially we know individually what, what conditions you have in history, you know, it's quite useful to start to know on the individual level, to kind of aggregating and drawing insights from populations at large to help drive good healthcare going forward? Yep, uh, so there are a number of different ways that that's done, but the two main ones is uh, like called, it's like surveillance, which mm. in our world, <laughs> it has a really dodgy um, like connotations, but in public health, it means monitoring the yeah. incidence rate of particular conditions. So we saw a lot of surveillance happening mm. during COVID. And so that might be when all of the records of a particular disease get sent to, for example, what was Public Health England, it's mm -hmm. now UK HSA, and that would sort of be, oh right, anything that's a recorded disease. So we also now look at things like mumps and measles, which are yeah. coming back because vaccination mm -hmm. rates have dropped off. Um, so there's that aspect of, of sort of public health surveillance. The stuff that I do with PhD is more to do with uh, clinical decision support software. So that's when you are in your GP and you might see a little thing that flashes up on your, the GP screen that says, remember to ask this person about X. So, for example, whenever I go, I will always get a pop up that says, remember to remind Jess to go to cervical screening, for, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's a very basic form of clinical decision support. What I look at now is the algorithmic side. So there mm. tends to be stuff that's called predictive or personalised or preventative. So how can we take the data from everybody, use machine learning or anything like that to identify patterns of association that make you, for example, higher risk of X disease, um, then push that information to your GP to say, right, now you are at X percent risk of this. If you take these measures, this will help reduce your risk. So that sort of algorithmic clinical decision support software. Um, in terms of how you do that, well, you get the data, you clean it, you mm. make it in an aggregate source, you make it accessible to researchers ideally in a 
in a secure way, run models over the top of it, yeah. validate and evaluate, and then hopefully push that into a clinical system. But nobody really gets that full pipeline yet. That's so interesting. I didn't, I mean, that's a really interesting way to like, yeah, like flash things up and suggest that people go in for mm-hmm. a check-in. Is it easier or more possible with certain conditions than others? Yes, so it's basically, it's pretty easy for anything that's already known knowledge. Yes. Um, so the things that I was talking about, the cervical screening, they're sometimes called pop-ups or they're called expert systems. So effectively, they're computerised forms of a flowchart, if this, then that. Yeah. So if person is female um, or identified as female, it's over 25, remind them to, to go to cervical screening. That's really simple for things that are much more complicated. So that would be rare diseases or things that appear that don't have a necessarily clear cause, Mm. that it's much harder to make that work, um, both from a technical perspective, but also just from a statistical perspective, that health is really complicated and it's massively impacted by confounding. Mm. And you're also only ever dealing with relative risk rather than absolute risk. And that's quite a difficult thing to communicate. And it's also a difficult thing to validate. Mm. Um, And so that's why in the other aspect is really super boring but if you're looking at a a rare disease then you're going to have a small data set of the number of people who have that disease and it's hard to train a model yeah and it's it's worth stating some of the we'll come on to the downsides of this Mm. but it's worth stating some of the upsides first Mm. which is that in principle particularly for populations who tend to who kind of conditions get overlooked or downplayed including by their by their gps often Mm. women in pain for example black women tend to have very much higher rates of Problems associated with pregnancy and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, in if in a perfect world or in a in a perfectly working system, this kind of algorithmic approach should really surface those concerns and those possible problems earlier and more effectively than potentially the kind of face to face or in, in addition to the face to face conversations that we have today. Oh, exactly. Ideally, the the, the logic behind it is entirely sound. Yeah. So we know, for example, that even beyond the more socio cultural elements that you've just mentioned there, we know, for example, that the rate of medical error is really high. Mm. Um, And so if you can reduce medical error, medical error might be misdiagnosing, Mm. but it might also be uh, misprescribing, so prescribing the wrong drug, prescribing the wrong dose. Uh, If you can reduce that by having a clinical decision support system that's doing it algorithmically, then you've gone a long way. Mm. And often, again, I know we're going to talk about the negative implications, but people will then point out, well, doctors aren't perfect. And it's true. Doctors Mm. have biases. Doctors get tired um like you said they don't necessarily recognize women's pain people of color really struggle Mm. so yes ideally it can make a massive difference um and can really make healthcare more targeted and potentially less impacted by some of the sort of historical Mm. issues that you've just touched on Mm-hmm. But ideally, <laughs> but the flip side is, is from the same problem, right? Which is bias exactly. from society perpetuating yeah. data. Yeah, exactly. There's there's also a real risk of falling into sort of category, and I'm going to say I'm so OIINL, but of being too deterministic. Mm-hmm. Um, so assuming that you can run an algorithm and and just that will solve everything and also falling foul of the sort of myth of objectivity so this all the things that we've just said there implies that the algorithm is somehow more objective and not conditioned by biases and than a human but the reality is it's trained on all of the models and trained on all of the data that is 
designed and written into by humans and those biases are baked into it. Um, so there are really big complications there. Mm. For example, you, you mentioned people of colour. So in uh, electronic health records, ethnicity is not recorded in about 26% of <laughs> records. Yeah. Um, and then there are other things to do with the social determinants of health. So, for example, it's really hard to work out where people live and mm. what, what living conditions they're, they're, they're dealing with. So there isn't as much objectivity as people as people like to claim. Mm. And then it's very, very difficult to validate these mm. models and test them in a way that, you know, you can say, yes, this works in principle, but as soon as I put it into practice, its performance is dropping right off. So there are complications there. Then there are other more nuanced potential bad things, quote-unquote, <laughs> to do with the fact that that healthcare is a fundamentally human experience. Mm. It's a very kinesthetic thing because you're talking about dealing with my body and you. It's a, a therefore it's a very human-based, very empathetic, very personalised service because you have to trust the person. Mm. It's not really clear what happens when you start intermediating in that relationship and that very human thing. An algorithm will never be truly empathetic, for example. It can mimic how an empathetic response might sound, but it doesn't understand that. Mm. And we know that empathy matters because we have studies showing when people feel cared for, their outcomes are better. Mm. But we don't know why, and therefore we don't know how to translate that into some form of algorithm to mimic that impact. Mm. Mm. So on a slightly different note, uh, I did mention at the top of this episode that, you know, Skeptics is about tech news, politics and research. And I don't know how much you want to talk about this, but uh, we could obviously dedicate a whole episode to like the politics of the NHS and the NHS yeah. in mm. crisis. But how much does that kind of backdrop affect your research? Everything that's been happening and changing with the NHS in the last few years perhaps people's faith and you know the potential changes that we might be looking at with the NHS like a more privatized system does that impact your research in a big way uh, massively in yeah. like in in several different ways one the funding crisis yes. is really the big motivator behind a lot of the desire to to digitize mm. and in particular to use clinical decision support because as much as we can talk about all of the isn't it nice to personalise things? The reality is it's cheaper. If we catch diseases earlier and we teach people how to look after themselves so yeah. they don't get sick, it's much cheaper. The issue of that is that you're shifting responsibilities for maintaining health from the state to the individual. Mm. And not everybody has the same levels of capacity to take on that type of advice. So it's complicated there. The other ways in which the politics... Mm, make a difference and impact on the relationship is because you are changing the organisations that are involved. So the NHS has already got private organisations working in it. GPs are privatised businesses. They just contract with the NHS. Mm. But people assume that they work under the NHS umbrella. Right. As soon as you're talking about the types of things that we've been discussing, you are no longer involving just organisations that are within the NHS family. You are involving big private tech companies, you are involving um, private analytical services, you are involving private electronic health record providers, and there isn't really sufficient framework for working out how that happens in a way that maintains public trust. Um, 
And that's always been one of the big pushbacks against things like Care.Data, which I mentioned before, that there was no, I suppose, buffer between who can access the data and, mm. and, and in what way. Um, so that makes a big difference. And then the third, the third reason is that the NHS, and in particular the use of people's health data for secondary purposes, really relies on the concept of the public good and this idea of altruism. So lots of people will say, I will let my health data be used so that other people don't get sick. Um, now, that exists because the NHS's values are, this is for everybody. Yeah. As soon as you start interrupting that, which I think is happening because people yes. are increasingly frustrated with the service that is provided you start to undermine that value and I think that would massively disrupt people's willingness yeah. to participate in the altruistic aspect of data donation. And how they perceive the health service, right? It's not yeah. like we're saying, okay, I'll give my data to Facebook to make advertising better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. It really changes if it's a private company yes. and it's not about, and also health is just a completely different aspect of it and when we feel like there are other motivations at play. Yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> I, and I think it will just really change people's motivations. Yeah. Right. And on a similar note, you recently came out with a very quick turnaround paper with our supervisor, Luciano <laughs> Florida, about the use of LLMs, the, the sort of um, yeah. most voguish form of AI at the moment, in chatbots in, in medical context, right? Yes. Could you, since it's so recent, could you just give us a brief kind of overview of, of what you say in that paper and whether we should be worried about? Um, the use of, of chatbots specifically in healthcare context. Yes, so that paper came from the fact that I wrote a Twitter thread in <laughs> a fit of rage about a number of stories being published about the fact that LLMs, so large language models, so ChatGPT and various others, now being able to pass medical exams and this somehow meaning that they can act as a clinician. And so I wrote a Twitter thread and made a lot of people quite cross. <laughs> and then I turned the, the Twitter thread into a paper. In terms Excellent. Of, <laughs> in terms of what it says is, essentially it says, you as much as a chatbot can answer the questions on a medical exam, mm. it's never going to fully replicate the functions of a clinician because healthcare is much more than question and answer. Mm. Yeah. And also, I could pass a medical exam if you gave me all of the questions and all of the answers <laughs> in advance. Right? Like that, or a loosely, differently yeah. worded version. Exactly. Of all, yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's not necessarily a difficult thing to do. Yeah. Um, so then the arguments that we make in the paper as to why it's more complicated, first of all, because evidence-based medicine is more about, is much more than just relying on the exact evidence. So it's much more than just interpreting facts and parroting them back. Mm -hmm. It's actually about contextualization. If mm -hmm. you go and look at the definition from Sackett in 1995, it's about how do I combine my personal experience as a clinician with the evidence that exists in medical research? Mm -hmm. An algorithm doesn't do that. It does just the back and forth parroting. It mm -hmm. doesn't do the contextualization and that diminishes the point of right. evidence-based medicine. Um, we talk about the empathy thing, which, which mm -hmm. I have already, already mentioned, so I won't bore on again about now. So those are the main things and then I think we made about three three other points um particularly we talk about this thing for example called the importance of learned intermediaries so right. this is an idea in medicine where your responsibility and part of your fiduciary responsibility which is overarchingly the 
way in which they legalise the do no harm <laughs> principle of the Hippocratic Oath, that doctors are supposed to be able to play back to patients everything about the way that they are being treated. <laughs> so if mm. I'm going to prescribe you a drug, I have to understand how that drug works in a yeah. high level way. And I am able to explain the risks and the benefits mm. of that particular drug. Now, because of the complexity factors of the pipeline that we discussed a minute ago, doctors cannot really do that for massive LLMs. Mm -hmm. So how, how is that learned intermediary aspect happening? And the other aspect of that is that as much as that duty applies to things like drugs, it also applies to information. Mm -hmm. So doctors will also think about how can I phrase this in a way that doesn't cause psychological harm? For example, do I really need to tell this person about this risk of them developing this if I can't actually do anything about <laughs> it? Does that cause more harm than mm. good? Or how do I make this understandable in this person's life? Again, an algorithm will just parrot back the information. It's not going to tell you oh, I understand that screening or risk profiling this person for this disease could mm. in fact have some kind of psychological harm. Yeah. And then the final point that we make, which I won't talk about in too much mm. detail because it's, it's uh, almost cliched at this point, but it's the rubbish in, rubbish out yeah. thing. So LLMs are trained on the internet. If you've ever looked up health information <laughs> on the internet, mm. a lot of it is complete nonsense. Mm. And so it can both spit back misinformation that it's already found and then they do this thing called hallucination so yeah. they make up information as well so that's that's a big problem yeah i think we've all seen that in like different aspects of chat gpt when we played around with it and obviously for health it has potentially dangerous connotations yeah. but you know there's there's also this trend of saying oh chat gpt will replace teachers mm -hmm. or will replace artists or will replace creatives i think there's this kind of evangelizing and doomsaying about um, about technology, Definitely. but I think um, you know, Jess. Just want to say thank you so much for joining us here today. Yeah. Um, yeah, this me. is our kind of second conversation. As you said, we talked to Ben and his colleague Nick about uh, health a little while ago. I think two episodes in, I'm finally understanding more about health and health data. So maybe by the third time we do this, I will, I don't know, I'll have a really intelligent point to make. <laughs> but in the meantime, I actually learned a lot today and yeah. I feel like you explained it all super well. Um, and your research is uh, impressively and dauntingly important. <laughs> so good luck with it. Thank you very much. How would you like people to get in touch with you if they want to say nice things on your Twitter threads rather than rant at you? Uh, um, well, either on Twitter, so I'm Jess R. Morley on Twitter, or email me. Great. Mm -hmm. Great. Great. Well, best of luck with the rest of the, the PhD. I'm um, sure it'll go yes. extremely well. And um, we'll be back next week with more talk about tech. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Thanks Jess. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.